Hey, what's up, everybody? This is your host, Nico. And Irvin, and this is Shining Spotlight, the stream where we highlight creatives in the industry in order to inspire you guys. Today, we have a researcher who's dedicated much careful time to the medium many of us enjoy called manga. He has spent much careful time and energy to highlight the origins of manga even before the time of Osamu Tezuka. This can be found in his book, Comics and the Origins of Manga, a Revisionist History, uh, which earned him an Eisner, which is one of the highest awards and honors that you can get you know, among writers, artists, and creatives in the comic industry. Today, we welcome Aika Exner to the show. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, thank you for coming on, Mr. Exner. Um, so, you know, I, I'm really curious, and, I'm, and you've talked about this a little bit in the book, um, but, you know, just for the audience, just briefly, can you talk about what inspired you to want to go, like, back further, you know, in the history of manga, you know, especially, you know, given the day, everybody just thinks of either Osamu Tezuka, or if you're really, like, surface level with manga, people may only think of, like, the stuff like Dragon Ball or whatever. So can you just kind of tell us what inspired you to want to do this research? So I've always been interested in, in comics and American comics, European comics, Japanese comics, but my academic training was mostly in comparative literature. And I was writing my, or I was planning on writing my dissertation in translation studies. And so I was interested in the translation of stuff that's not entirely textual. So stuff like movies, opera, plays, video games, and, and comics. And then I read in Frederick Schott's book, uh, Manga Manga, that as early as the 1920s, there were these American comic strips translated into Japanese. And I thought that was really fascinating that a hundred years ago, Japanese people were reading American comics in translation. And so I decided to make that one chapter of my dissertation, essentially. And I got some funding from a university to go to Japan to look at uh, translations of these comic strips, to look for more of them and to see to what extent they were translated, any other information I could find out. And then I was just blown away by the sheer quantity of material that there was at the time, like in the 1920s, uh, American comic strips and some, some other foreign comic strips, and also how much closer those comic strips look to modern day manga than a lot of stuff, a lot of sort of visual material that was published by Japanese authors at the time. So that's really what got me into that subject. And then I realized that this is probably how comics were established in Japan through these translations. That's what it looked like to me. And then I realized that this would actually be a topic for a whole dissertation. And so that's when I decided to focus only on sort of the history of comics and manga. Okay, okay. That's pretty clear and concise right there. I mean, honestly, like, um... Every time I've ever thought about it, like, you know, when it comes to, you know, um, like just the medium, you know, everyone just tells you Osamu Tezuka, that's it. They just, they get right there. They don't bring up things like, you know, and I mean, I don't want to get too, too, too thick, you know, because obviously there's a lot of material in the book, but I will say like bringing up uh, Father is one of the things that you brought up in the book, which for a lot of people who don't know anything about bringing up Father, because I'm pretty sure most of us out there don't, you know, unless you yeah. probably read the book, you know, that was a European comic um, actually that ended up coming over and it was uh, like into Japan, it was um, um, translated. Um, well, it, was, it was American. Bring Your Father was American. Yes, but, yes, yes. But it was popular, not just in Japan, but around the world. It's probably one of the most influential works in comics history, which is mostly been forgotten, but the strip was also popular in, I think, Argentina and uh, in China, it was big at the time and, and a bunch of other countries. There's uh, 
the, the head of King Features, which was the, the Hearst syndicate that syndicated all these comic strips internationally, in his autobiography says that the, the strip was published in like 600 different cities around the world. And that was their most successful strip internationally. So there's there's a bunch of countries around the world where Bring It Father was actually hugely successful. But probably the, the most successful was in Japan. Wow. Okay. Uh, and then, I mean, just, just to kind of get more a little more into into the book and that part of it, uh, you you also you also mentioned like key figures that kind of like kickstarted a lot of what uh, what manga was as far as what how we relate it to uh, as far as that was popular today as a uh, as a humorous uh, kind of uh, entertaining visual media of sorts. Uh, you, you mentioned an uh, one of the key individuals being uh, a, guy, a gentleman named uh, Kitazawa, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so, expand more on that. So, I think Kitazawa is often portrayed as sort of the, the grandfather of comics in Japan, but Kitazawa actually was never really interested in comics. So, um, really, quote unquote, Western cartoon, European and American cartoons really come into Japan in the 1890s. And uh, it mostly starts, not exclusively, there are other publications, but it mostly starts in a newspaper called Jiji Shinpo, um, which translates roughly to the current affairs, current affairs news. It was one of the first newspapers in Japan that was run on like a commercial basis, financed through advertising revenue, rather than uh, being run by a political party or something like that. And so in that newspaper in the 1890s, beginning in 1890, you have all these uh, so-called pantomime cartoons, like multi-panel cartoons that tell sort of a, a brief story or a brief joke without any text. And so that comes into Japan in the 1890s, and that's actually uh, the first time that the word manga is used with regards to sort of sequential art huh. and the comics-like storytelling. We have multiple images in sequence and they tell a story. So the word manga had existed before that, and uh, Hokusai had popularized it, not created it, but popularized the term. But um, even though in some histories of manga, you see sort of collages of multiple images in Hakusai's work, those are never actual narratives. They're never like a temporal sequence where sort of some yeah. same person, there's like this famous image with six, six uh, guys and it's often sort of implied that that's a temporal sequence, but it's actually six completely different people. So Hakusai had, had nothing to do with sort of sequential storytelling. That really only became a thing in the 1890s. And then this this word manga that was used for uh, sort of all sorts of drawing, mostly sort of mostly artistic sketches, a lot of naturalistic sketches, like the Hokusai manga. It's a bunch of buildings and like pictures of grass and stuff like that. Um, and then in the 1890s, this guy uh, Ipio Imaizumi, who was a cartoonist, was one of the first like modern the European and American influence cartoonists at that newspaper, the Jishimpo, starts using this word manga for sequential cartoons. So that's really when the history of manga as sequential storytelling really starts. And then that guy had a degenerative disease, unspecified, but because of that disease, it may have been ALS or something similar to that. He couldn't write or draw anymore. So they had to find a replacement for him. And that replacement was Rakken Kitazawa. So Rakken Kitazawa was also uh, trained in, in European and American cartooning. He learned from uh, an Australian cartoonist who later worked for the American cartoon magazine Puck. And then Kitazawa replaced Imaizumi at the Jiji Shimpo in 1899, starts a supplement so that he has like a, a manga page, essentially like a section. It's like half a page or entire page. 
And then in 19, uh, 1902, oh, sorry, no, he, he draws individual cartoons. In 1902, he gets an entire page or half a page. And that page is called Gigi Manga. And it's called Gigi Manga because the newspaper is called Gigi Shinpo. And so he, he takes over the description, the word manga for these cartoons from Imaizumi, his predecessor. And so it's, it's through that newspaper, Gigi Shinpo, that this word manga comes to describe cartoons. Because before that, there was a completely different word, ponchi, derived from the British punch or the, the Japan punch, which was- Yeah, the, Japan punch, yep. yeah. So up to that point, the word ponchi is actually much more common uh, in use for cartoons than the word manga. And so it's it's through Tezawa's work over like 20 years in the Gigi Shinpo that, that manga really becomes, and he was very active. Like he actually wrote to another newspaper that had a cartoon feature that they called ponchi and he wrote them a letter saying, please change this to manga because he considered the word ponchi to be outmoded and sort of associated with, with older traditions, whereas he really wanted uh, Japan to catch up to other countries. Because remember at the time, Japan was industrializing and modernizing. So facing the choice, uh, they were Japanese people were looking at what was happening with China, which was becoming sort of a de facto European colony. So they were like, well, we have two choices. Either we can become a Western colony like China, or we can try to become a, a Western like colonial empire ourselves by importing all this Western culture, these European and American technologies and culture. And that was the background of the times. So that was what was going on in Japan at the time. And Kitazawa thought that Ponchi sort of was too old. This was like the, the stuff that people like him, Japanese nationalists at the time were trying to leave behind. They were trying to make Japan more modern. And Kitazawa for some reason thought that the word manga uh, was, was a more modern or described more modern cartooning. But ironically, it's only because of Kitazawa that the word manga then becomes associated with, with sort of contemporary at the time, contemporaneous European and American cartoons. But Kitazawa actually did, even though, so, so I have to go even back even further. Around 1900 is when sort of what, what most people would now call comics, right? Where you have characters across multiple images having conversations using speech balloons. Yeah, like audio visual. Yeah, what, what I, so there are a lot of comic scholars who have very firm notions on what is comics and what isn't comics. And so if you talk to someone like Scott McCloud, who's like, oh, the Bayou Tapestry is comics. And, like art from Mesoamerica from the 1400s is comics. So in order to avoid sort of an, an instinctive, like defensive reaction when people read the book, it's like, oh, this guy has like a too narrow conception of comics. They came out with some audiovisual comics so that I could avoid that whole conflict. I was gonna ask you about that too. Like, you know, not not to cut you off, but you know, oh, please um, do cut me off, otherwise I'll just rant forever. <laughs> oh no, I want to hear more about it. But like, you know, when, when it comes to the whole like audiovisual media, I was gonna ask you, like, do you think that comics are just um like kind of condensed to just being an audio video visual media, or do you think that if let's say, for example, you have just a series of images, you know, but it's telling a story, is that still considered a, a comic if it's not really displaying any sound? You that's I mean? really that's a really great question because that's exactly so i what i'm trying to do with the definition of audiovisual comics is not to say like oh this is comics this is not comics but rather looking at historically right looking at what comics are today and like 
over 90% of comics are like multiple images and people talking with speech balloons, right? And have like motion lines and stuff like that. So you have experimental comics, right? And you have, you can have a comic where there's not even any people, right? Where you just see like some building decay over time. Like uh, Art Crumb did something like that where he just shows like multiple pictures of the same American city over decades. So I don't, I don't want to say like, oh, that's a comic or that's not a comic. But my whole um, sort of the, the point of my research was trying to figure out when did this type of storytelling that most people now call comics, right? That if someone tells you I wrote a comic, what the thing that first comes to your mind, when did that actually start? And so because that's essentially right, having so having a protagonist in a story and seeing that protagonist act out the story over multiple images and having conversations depicted as speech balloons. Right? That's essentially the same all over the world, right? That's the same whether you're looking at a Marvel comic or whether you're looking at uh, like Naruto or something like that. And because it looked like that model was introduced to Japan in the 1920s via these American comic strips, that's what led me to try to figure out when that actually started and how that started. Because a lot of times people say, oh, it's just, it's just a natural thing to, to depict speech and speech balloons. It's just natural or universal. But if that were true, then it doesn't make sense that we don't see that before the 1900s. And it also doesn't make sense why you can trace the spread of that art form from the US to France, to Japan, to China, to other places around the world. And of course, the, the first objection then is, oh, but you have speech balloons since the, the 1600s at least. But you never have actually conversations that continue over multiple panels. So you have like these word balloons and single panel cartoons where a character will say something like, I am the king and I want this. So it's not really, they're not really having a conversation with other characters in like a story world. They're explaining the, the cartoon to the reader. So it looks like a speech balloon because it has like a bubble with words in it. But it doesn't actually mean that this character is like talking to other characters and then those characters respond in the next panel. So that is a new more, thing that just didn't exist before 1899, essentially. It was more narrative, basically, like kind of just telling you, you know, speaking to the audience. Yeah, uh, narrative. Well, it, it was like the opposite of that. So the word balloons actually are almost exclusively found in individual single image cartoons. So like political allegories and stuff like that. Whereas um, story-based or narrative works that had multiple images, so stuff like the, the picture stories by Rudolf Töpfer in uh, Switzerland and Wilhelm Busch in Germany, which then swept Europe and the, the United States as well, and even made it to Japan, not Töpfer, but Busch's work, you actually don't see speech balloons in those. So the, the word balloon in those earlier cartoons from before the late 1800s was actually not associated with conversations or continuing stories at all. If if that makes any sense. No, I, I'm follow. I think I follow what you're saying. So, you it's, know, it's a, it's a very hard thing to wrap your mind around. But you can actually, if you go to like archive.org, there's like several books that collect like cartoons preceding the, the late 1800s. There's also cartoon magazines that uh, there's a great website called Hattie Trust, H-A-T-H-I and then Trust. And they collect, uh, they make available digitized works from around the world. And you can look at a lot of uh, European and American cartoon magazines actually from the 1800s, like Life and Judge and Puck. 
And so if you want to look at these cartoons actually and see what I'm talking about for yourself so that you don't have to just rely on, on whether I'm actually just making something up or not, uh, those are all available online. So you can actually look at a lot of the history of cartooning uh, on the internet. It's just, uh, it's not very widely publicized, but this material is all out there somewhere accessible. Um, but so for the sake of this interview, just t take me at my word about this, that like this particular type of comic storytelling, right? Where you, people ha having conversations using speech balloons, which I'm just using as a shorthand for comics, because I'm not saying that if that doesn't happen, that it's not a comic or that, right, that it needs to be that way. But this particular thing was created at a particular moment in time for like particular reasons. The reasons namely being like the spread of first uh, like visual technologies like photography and film. And then the, the speech balloon really uh, came in because of the phonograph and the radio and uh, the telephone. Like these, these first technologies that were actually able to replicate speech. And because that was such a new thing at the time, cartoonists started making jokes about it. But if you want to make a joke about someone hearing a voice, you have to include the voice somehow, right? You have to depict that somehow. Yeah, I think the example of the comic that you gave, wasn't it uh, where there was like a, a bird in the, um, oh, what was it? A bird was in the- um, Yeah, the uh, parrot shows up a lot. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so yeah. There's, the, there's the famous, I mean, people may have, may have seen the, uh, is that visible on screen? The yellow kid cartoon, so that's yes. very famous. But that's actually by far not the, not the only cartoon like that. So as early as 1890, you have a similar cartoon about the phonograph, where then also the parrot says something to the phonograph, the phonograph records it, and then the phonograph belongs to some professor who uses it for a lecture, and then the, the parrot was just cursing, and then the phonograph plays back the curse words. And in these early cartoons about like these like sound jokes, the sort of sound images, that, like speech balloons, but it's not always a balloon, but when you have sound depicted graphically, like inside the image, it's almost always a joke about this type of phenomenon, but recorded sound, or like the parrot, right? That someone, this is also another example where, I don't know if it's visible. I think we kind of can see it a little bit. Yeah, so there's like, there's like the, this, this guy has like a-, a It's clear um, now. Yeah, like a trunk that uh, he's taking along some kind of travel, and then out of the trunk, you hear this voice saying, help, help. And uh, then the police come and open the trunk, and it's a parrot saying that. And you can see that like this type of joke was related to the phonograph, right? So the first time in history, you could hear a voice without having the person who said the original line actually be there. So that was like a really freaky experience. Obviously for us, right, we're not immediately in we're front used of one to another. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're used to it, but if if you like did a Zoom conversation with a person 200 years ago, they would freak out because it's, <laughs> it's not something that they would ever have heard, right? Whenever they heard a voice their entire life, the person would have been right there. And so that's why these cartoons at that time- It would have been witchcraft or some sort. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It would have been crazy, it would have been magic. And so to people at the time, it really was like this crazy new thing and that's what we see it in cartoons. And that's then how sound sort of starts being integrated into cartoons. And that happens first in the US because the phonograph was way more common in the US. So like this happens around 1900 and in Japan uh, until like the 1910s, the phonograph, like phonographs were super expensive. So only very rich people could afford it. So most people had never heard of, heard of phonographs before, or maybe they'd heard about them, right. but they'd never experienced one. And uh, there's even an anecdote from the, uh, the Russo-Japanese War in 1904-1905 uh, when uh, Japan and Russia fought and Japan won. 
And there's an anecdote that the retreating, retreating Russian soldiers had left behind phonograph records. And then they were captured by Japanese soldiers and they tried to eat them because they thought they were rice crackers. Now, I don't, I don't think that anecdote is actually true because it sounds kind of silly, but whether it's true or not, like the fact that that was a thing that was told at the time or like in the aftermath kind of shows that around 1905, the like phonograph records were still unknown to most Japanese people, right? This anecdote was believable because it was believable that most Japanese people would not know what a phonograph was. So my theory is that that's why we don't see that storytelling, that kind of comics, like audiovisual comics, uh, take root in Japan at the time. And so to circle back to Kitazawa, so that was a really long tangent, but the, the whole history doesn't really make sense without knowing that. Because Kitazawa, so these comic strips, uh, mostly the Cats and Jammer Kids and Happy Hooligan, those are sort of the first two modern comic strips. And Kitazawa was following developments and he was very familiar with British cartooning, with French cartooning and with American cartooning. And so Kitazawa knew of these comic strips and he, as early as 1902, he actually uses this format, right? It's showing people having conversations across multiple panels using speech balloons. But he didn't really, Kitazawa didn't really care about storytelling. He, he was mostly all about political and social cartooning. So he always wanted to make some kind of educational or political point with his cartoons. And based on his autobiographical writings, it seems that the only reason why he actually created some stories is that they sold. And the Gigi Shimpo and then uh, also a magazine that Kitazawa started were commercial enterprise, right? So you wanted to sell copies. And if you just make like these political points, there probably wasn't that big a market for it, right? So people wanted to be entertained. So in order to be commercially viable and sell copies, you want to entertain people. And the best way of doing that was to tell stories and to tell jokes, right? That weren't necessarily these heavy handed political points about how uh, Japan needed to modernize or invade this country or that country. And uh, so even though this format of comics, right, what I call audiovisual comics, basically sequential narratives using speech balloons, emotion lines and stuff like that, uh, was known in Japan as early as 1902, but didn't really catch on. And so my explanation that I've arrived at through my research- Till bringing, bringing up father. Till, exactly, till bringing up father. So bringing up father really, you could call it the first modern manga, like the origins or one origin point. You could definitely call it one origin point of modern. You manga. know, you realize that that probably scares a lot of like modern, like your average manga fan out there. Like what? You mean that, tell me? <laughs> I've I've learned that it makes a lot of people very upset because <laughs> there are a lot of people who like manga because it's Japanese. So if you tell them actually it's way less Japanese, it's also not specifically American. So this is like a universal thing, right? It just happened to occur in the United States first because the United States had was more technologically advanced at the time. And there was sort of greater permeation in society with these visual technologies like photography and, and sound recording. So it's it's coincidence. It's not like a specifically American medium. It just happened to, to occur in the US first and then spread. And the same thing happens in France, for example, in the 1920s, uh, where newspapers start serializing American comic strips and translation. And then French artists start drawing comic strips using speech balloons. And that do doesn't really catch on before that. And so you can really see this happen in, I would assume, I haven't looked at the, the publication record of every individual country in the world, but every country that uh, you look at the 1920s and 1930s, you see this happen through 
uh, American comic strips. So there's a, there's a, I think Belgian, I'm sorry if I'm getting this wrong. There's a, I think he's a Belgian scholar in Thailand who just wrote a book about the history of comics in Thailand and the same thing happened there. So I think it's reasonable to assume that it was a universal thing that really com the comics form around the world, the audiovisual comics form really spread via these American comic strips, which started to be internationally syndicated in the, the late 1910s and, and early 1920s. So the, the reason why Bring Up Father came to Japan is that King Features, a rather international feature service, those names are often used interchangeably. They were both Hearst uh, to William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper mogul. Um, there are two of his companies and they had an office in Tokyo. So they actually had a representative there. So it wasn't it wasn't complete, complete happenstance, right? That these comics came to Japan willy nilly. There was an American company that was trying to sell them and there were Japanese editors who had been around the world. And so the editor who decided to license Bring Up Father had actually been reading it on like trips overseas in the US. So he was familiar with the strip. He could read it in English. He thought it was funny. He thought the, the humor was universal. And so he wanted to license it for his own newspaper. And that's sort of how that, that whole thing happened. It was a huge success in Japan. And so if you have competition right between different newspapers and one newspaper starts doing something that sells a lot of copies, then if you're an editor of a competing newspaper, you start wanting the same thing, right? Because you want to keep up with the competition. And that's how other newspapers start featuring American comic strips as well. And that's then how the first Japanese comic strips were drawn. So the, the very first sort of long lasting Japanese comic strip, Nonkina Tosan or Easygoing Daddy or Careless Dad. There's like a bunch of Carefree Dad. There's a bunch of translations out there. But that Jigs happened. And, um, Maggie was the other one, I think, or is it? No, Jigs and Maggie are the protagonists of Bringing a Father. Mm, okay, I thought it was so, another name that they, that they also. Oh no, no, yeah, those were also used interchangeably. Like a lot of people would refer to Bringing a Father as Jigs and Maggie, and it was actually published in at least one Japanese publication under that title, Jigs and Maggie. But so the the easygoing daddy comic strip drawn by Japanese artists. That was because his editor literally said, oh, this Bring Up Father thing is successful. I want you to draw me something like that for my newspaper. So it's very, like the historical record is very clear. Like whether you agree with my hypothesis about whether this is related to sound recording or not, like even if you think that's complete BS, it's the, the record that this, this particular form of storytelling came in through these American comic strips and was adopted because it was popular and successful with Japanese readers uh, that's actually very clear in the historical record. Like I had one one early peer review of my book said, "Oh, this is denying the agency of Japanese people." But it's not. But it's it's Japanese editors who pick these strips for Japanese publications, and it's Japanese readers who like them, and then Japanese artists. So this was like, and it, it wasn't like the the U.S. was forcing this upon Japan. It was like Japanese people who saw this and who liked it and uh, who, who adopted it as part of their own culture. And the same thing you see happening with movies, for example, during the time with jazz as well, which was huge in Japan in the 1920s. So this is yes. not like an isolated thing, right? It's related to all these other developments that we see happening. All around the mm -hmm. same time. Yeah, it, it all happened yeah. around the same time. A lot of people think that Japan was just this completely shut off country before 1945, when all of a sudden, because of the American occupation. Oh, no. no. <laughs> yeah, no, there was... Like Japan wanted like you know, King Kong in the 1930s. That was a huge, you should, you see like newspaper advertisements for all these foreign films. Like they, I mean, it wasn't just American stuff, it was also European stuff, but Japan, like, especially in the 1920s, then in the 1930s, when the country sort of shifts rightward and becomes fascist eventually, 
um, that that kind of recedes. But in the 1920s, especially Japanese cities like Tokyo, where they were completely cosmopolitan, and you could go to cafes and listen to jazz, you could watch like the latest Charlie Chaplin movie, you you could read comic strips. Like that, it was it was a very international culture. So. Really quick, because I have a lot, lot to say about. Oh yeah, sorry. Oh no, no, no! But I just want to make sure we ad address uh, some of the comments yeah, that come through. All right. So the first comment that we had earlier, uh, Ika, which university are you attached to? That's from Jeff Lilly. Oh, I'm in what's called an independent scholar now, which is uh, a euphemism for unemployed. So I, I now work as a translator because uh, and I wouldn't recommend this to anyone who's who wants to pursue a career in academia. Uh, don't don't do comics like it's there are no comics departments so you would have to find a job in uh, most common are English literature or if you do like manga then Japanese literature but if your whole thing is comparative stuff so if your whole work is sort of about the international uh, spread of comics it that makes it a lot harder to find a job in a, a university department because they're all about regional studies and there are no comic studies departments. So I am no longer uh, affiliated with any university. I now like do this for, for shits and giggles essentially, because it just, I, and it's also not, it's not a money maker. Unfortunately, you don't, uh, unless you, you write something that's like published by a trade publisher that becomes like a, a, a huge hit. Um, I just really, I mean, I'd already done most of the work for my dissertation. I just wanted it out there and it's, uh, and um, hopefully eventually correct stuff like the Wikipedia entry for the history of manga and stuff like that. But um, yeah, sorry, I started, I started rambling again. The, the, oh, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. I'm, I'm the like, short story is I'm, I'm no longer uh, affiliated with the university. All right. Um, uh, imagine those Pete. This is very informative. Thank you. Uh, YouTube user. Hello, everyone. It's Ira. Hey, what's up, Ira? Ira. All right. Um, imagine those, Pete. Another excellent guest by Shining Otaku. Mr. Uh -huh. Exner's wealth of knowledge is making an entertaining and interesting episode. Gotta take notes. That's very sweet. Thank you. Um, imagine those TV. Mad interesting. Let's see here. Get through these comments a little quicker. Um, uh, imagine contingent is present. Let's see here. Here's another question. Okay, here we go. Jeff Lilly. What are some sources, archives, collections that you've explored while in Japan? So the most important resource in Japan is the National Diet Library, which is basically the Japanese equivalent of the Library of Congress. They have most publications, uh, well, the most publications anywhere in Japan. So most things you can look at in the National Diet Library, they have all the major newspapers, for example. So that's like 90% of my research while in Japan was spent at the National Diet Library, just looking through newspaper reels. There are some, some magazines and some papers that they don't have there. Um, so uh, there was one newspaper that featured a couple of American comic strips um, that was based in Osaka. And so I had to contact that newspaper directly. Unfortunately, they had a really, they had a really nice um, archivist who was very helpful. Some, some publications are not very cooperative, but uh, that person was super nice. And then the Kyoto International Manga Museum has some publications uh, from the 20s and 30s that you can't really find anywhere else in the world. And then like a couple of university libraries here, here and there, and like the Museum of uh, Newspapers and the Modern Literature Museum in Japan. So that was, um, 
and then I did the, the stuff about like the sort of the origins of comics in the U.S. that I that I did in in the U.S. Uh, unfortunately, that mostly happened in a single newspaper, and then the all the cartoon magazines are digitized, so you can do that stuff online. But really, um, and this is one reason I think why this history hasn't really been uncovered earlier or rediscovered earlier is that you can't really do it outside of Japan, and you do have to uh, spend a lot of time just pointlessly looking through newspapers because the comic strips published in newspapers were an index, right? So you can't look them up. You just have to like look through newspapers and just like look through page by page to, to find them essentially. I mean, there are people who have done some work and who have, there's a, there's a Chinese scholar who wrote her dissertation on um, Japanese children's manga in like eight different newspapers. So she, she had cataloged, um, a lot of a lot of um, manga, both sort of comics and then also picture stories, where it's sort of where the images and text are separate. Where you just have like the narrated story that then is illustrated with images. So she had all grouped that under the the umbrella term manga, and it's um, one of the problems with sort of comic studies, right? That different people will use different different terms to describe the same thing or different things, um, and sort of manga has been used as a, as a catch all. Um, I'm getting way off track again. To, to, to oh no, that's fine. I'm like, I'm. T you know what? Whenever when you're talking, I feel like we're here. We're just like, wow. Like it's like a teacher. Just you know. So I mean, do your thing. Say your thing. Uh, I don't. I don't know if you. I, I was recently. Um, I like a lot of people. I spent a lot of time on Twitter, and there was a recent great tweet where I don't know if you saw the video of uh, Joe Biden saying like, "Oh, they're going to find out. They will find out." And someone tweeted that out saying, "When someone accidentally asks about the topic of your dissertation or research, that's that's sort of usually uh, what that <laughs> triggers." Just me going off on like a two-hour speech saying, "They're going to. They're about to find out." Um, <laughs> But uh, long story short, so the, the National Diet Library is probably the, the single most important place for doing any research um, on pre-war manga, so pre-1945 manga. Though uh, the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library at The Ohio State University also has a pretty good collection. And they asked me, so I was there for research earlier this year, and they asked me what they could add to like, improve their collection. I said, well, you should get the entire run of the Chichimpo. Uh, because that's sort of where the, the origins of manga really started and like how the, the term was used and like the importation of cartoons. Uh, and then I looked it up and I was like, oh, actually, this would cost you like tens of thousands of dollars because these uh, they're either available on microfilm reels or as book volumes. And it's it's just tens of thousands of dollars. But they actually got it approved. So now they actually do have they're the only place in the US where you can actually look through that um, that entire run. So. If you're in the U.S. and interested in doing research on this, uh, on like the early the, sort of the beginnings of manga, starting from the, the 1890s, then you can do that in Ohio now as well. But unfortunately, to, to really get a whole picture, you would probably have to be in Tokyo. Interesting. OK, so we're going to get to the other questions in a moment. But before we do, of course, you know, there's a couple things that we have to say first. You know, if you are new to Shining Otaku, this is the first time you come check out, you know, uh, the Shining Spotlight segment where we interview creators in the industry. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. Hit that um, bell so that you actually get a notification so you know when we do an episode. Um, and then also um i want to also say that we have um the honeycomb hideout that we recommend that you guys check out which is um our uh our uh, show basically by um 
Joe and Christine, you know, over at the Honeycomb Hideout, where we talk about, um, you know, pop culture. We talk about everything, you, you, you name it, in terms of, you know, the, any controversial topics in the industry. You know, it's kind of like, you know, um, how would you say, Nico, like a Howard Stern for Geeks, but except a little bit different. It's kind of changed over time, but you can right. find it on Spotify and there's going to be a link down below for you guys to check that out. All right, let's get back to everything now. All right, all right. So really when you got into it, like one of the, one of the things that, that really kind of that really stood out is the fact that when we try to get to the, the direct origins of manga and depending on how you really look at it, I mean, this this whole thing deviates into so many different spectrums. I mean, you know, it, it's crossed over by uh, by by uh, Shunpyo, Ponchi, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, Tobai, uh, but you know, as far as 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 is modernized and recognized today, the uh, the the best possible direction as far as its origin is uh, is how Kitazawa, uh, and uh, and of course uh, the the few individuals that that were uh, that were key around his time period, they're pretty much what made it renowned and uh, recognized as it stands today with the word balloons and how the sound formats work on these pages. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm using this word correctly. The uh, the trans uh Oh, transdigetic. Yeah. Trans yes, transdigetic uh, comic strips. Or uh, comic so, strips, as you would. Go on. So I was actually kind of curious about the individuals after Kitazawa. Because it seemed like uh, after him, there was uh, there was another gentleman named uh, Okamoto, I believe his name. Yeah, they were contemporaries. Right, um, and, and it, it was that that gentleman, if I understand correctly, who uh, who actually implemented the uh, the speech bubbles. No. Oh, okay. But uh, that's that's actually an excellent question. So to your first point about sort of what what manga really is, right? You brought up Tobai. So. Um, the historiography of manga and comics has been made more difficult by the fact that we don't really that or most scholars don't use clearly defined terms and like the word manga has had such such different meanings in history so um and you have to remember that this is in the 1920s uh, people had no idea that comics would become such a huge industry so at the time, people just grouped everything together. So everything that was like cartoons was just the same thing, whether it be like a single panel cartoon or like a caricature or like a longer story. And so um, what, I'm, what I was trying to do with my research is find out where this longer storytelling comes from, right? So you have sort of manga as this thing. And in a lot of histories of manga sort of all mixed together that people say like, oh, manga was this and then it became this. But that's not really true. So manga didn't, it wasn't that there was this, this, these single panel cartoons in the early 1900s that were called manga and they like morphed into something else. And that's my issue with a lot of historiography of manga that it sort of pretends like, oh, there were picture scrolls in sort of the 1200s and they morphed into something else and then morphed into something else. And all of a sudden you have Dragon Ball. Right. Right. So that's just simply not what happened. So my, what I wanted to find out was where did Dragon Ball come from? So it didn't, it's it's obvious if you, because there are no intermediaries, right? So you cannot trace Dragon Ball back to sort of ho the Hokusai manga or stuff like that. So my question was like, where did stuff like Dragon Ball come from and why does it look so similar to comics all around the world? 
And so in order to do that, that's why I tried to define, that's why I came up with the, the term audiovisual comics, sort of try to narrow down the subject so that when I say manga or like the type of manga that I'm interested in is audiovisual comics, right? So these longer stories. So I'm not interested in uh, political cartoons, right? Like single panel cartoons. That is also interesting in its own right, but it doesn't help us understand where the stuff that now is sold in like Barnes and Nobles all around the US comes from because that did not evolve out of these single panel cartoons. And then the, the your second point about transdiegetic. So that's, a, I, I know it's not a great word. I couldn't really come up with anything better. Uh, when I was looking into the origins of speech balloons, I realized that they evolved in fairly close proximity to other stuff like motion lines and uh, especially pain stars or impact stars. So in early cartoons and even the 1950s still, you see this, I mean, beyond that, in Tezuka Osama's cartoons, like the character gets hit in the head, there are all these stars everywhere. So that comes, and I've actually managed to track down what I think is the precise point when that happened. That was introduced to Japan in the 1890s, uh, 1894 to be precise, also through American cartoons. So these like stars, and I was really fascinated that no one had ever bothered to look into that because I'd always thought that was really weird that you see that like before 1900, you see this in the US and Japan. I was like, where did this come from? Because it's not like a, a natural thing, right? You're not like, oh, this person's in pain. Clearly there should be stars in the air. Like in English, there's the expression like to see stars, right? But like that doesn't exist in, J in Japanese. So there's no like reason why this should have existed independently. But so that also comes into Japan in the 1890s. So all these different forms of representing something that you couldn't otherwise see. Right. So if you have a single image, you wouldn't be able to see motion in it. You wouldn't be able to see the sound. You wouldn't be able to see any pain. Right. And it's not limited to that. You also have like these like freestanding question marks, exclamation points to show confusion. Right. You have like dollar signs for greed. Right. You have like the heart shape to indicate love. So all of this stuff functions in the same way. It like makes something visible for the reader that the reader otherwise wouldn't be able to see, right? You can't see directly that someone's in love, that someone's greedy, that someone is in pain, that someone is saying something. I mean, you could show them with their mouth open, but you wouldn't be able to know what sound they're making. So all of that kind of, all of that started developing in the late 1800s and then new forms get added around 1900 and beyond that. And there wasn't a good word. There's like the word emanata, but it's usually more refers to something like anything like emanating from a character. So it didn't really capture speech balloons. So I was looking for something to, to, to frame all of that as like the same category, because I really think that it is essentially the same thing. This is like a new thing that happens in the late 19th century in cartooning and then spreads around the world. And I think this is what enabled modern comics. It's not just word balloons, it's like speech, right? It's like sound and it's motion and it's all these other things that help you show a story instead of having to explain it underneath, right? Like this character is in love with this character. This character is confused. You can just show it by including these symbols. And so that's why I group as transdiegetic, diegetic being like the story world and trans being like a cross. So it's like transport, like basically translating it from the story world into our world. So like in films, in film studies, especially there's stuff like intra diegetic inside the story world. So if in my book, I use the example, like the, the Jaws theme, right? In Jaws, we're like, doo, 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 doo. like the shark can't hear that. Like no one in the movie is like, oh, I hear the Jaws theme. There's, there's a shark around, right? It's only the viewer that knows, oh, the shark is around. 
But like if you hear a character play music in a movie, then you're like, oh, that's the character. Obviously, here's the music that they're playing. So um, there's that distinction. And like the way that stuff like the speech balloon works, it's both at the same time, right? Like the sound is intradiegetic. It's inside the story. The characters can hear it, but they can't see the speech balloon, like the actual balloon with the words written. Like only we can see that. So that's why I came out with that word transdiegetic, which is not, it's probably not going to catch on because it's not like, a very catchy term, but it was the only way really that I that I found of explaining how this stuff works and also that it works in the same way. That actually the speech balloon and motion lines and paint stars, they're actually not three distinct things. They're all part of the same development in cartooning, like in the late 1800s and like around 1900, where like cartoonists start realizing, oh, we can actually represent all these things. So like if you look at like, re like post-Renaissance Western art, if you see like something in the air or falling, there's no motion lines. Like people, because people thought, and this is like, now we get like super abstract. I'm trying not to like go too, too wild and like theoretical. Okay. But people thought that vision was like a representation of truth, right? And like there is no lines when something's falling, right? So people in, and if you, I mean, you can clearly see this if you look at any European art between, oh, what's happening? Can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can see you. I mean, we'll okay. go too far a bit there, but yeah, you're good. So in, in European and sort of European influence art, um, whatever you see has to actually be there. So it was like a new realization. And you see that in art, is like in, in painting as well with Impressionism and Cubism, that artists were like, wait a minute, we can actually do more interesting things. We don't have to depict everything as it is. We can sort of show like things in different ways and like show more than you can see. Right, so cubism is like, oh, we'll show you the same thing from different angles all at the same time. We don't have to be realistic. And so it's, I, I don't think it's a coincidence, and there's people who have written about this, um, that at the same time that we see stuff like cubism and impressionism evolve, that we also see in cartooning, cartoonists having the same realization, right? We can actually show more than what's real. So we can actually show sound, right? In cubism, you show a completely different side at the same time. And in cartooning, you're like, oh, we can actually show sound. Like, we don't have to do what's realistic. We can actually do more than that. And so that's, to get back to the, your question about transdiegetic, that's sort of what I've been trying to capture with that term. And if anyone has a better, a better term, I will gladly use it. So really quick, um, you know, I, I want to ask this. So in the community that we're in, you know, which is considered to be like the original English language manga community, which is kind of like people, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of it before, but um, one of the things that I think, you know, you have some creators doing, some other creators don't do is there's like the whole thing of right to left. Like, should you do it right to left or left to right? I thought it was really interesting and you kind of highlighted this in the book, you know, where, you know, originally when, you know, you had a lot of, um, you know, I'm gonna say, you know, what was, you know, manga then, you know, or, you know, like a lot of the comics then, when they would bring them over, they would still, even though they translate them, keep them in left to right, yep. rather than having them be like, oh, we're going to do right to left. And I just, I, I saw a parallel with that. So I don't know, like, yeah, I don't know. Like, do you think that that's like, what reason, like what larger reason do you think that they did that? Like, was there no reason that they could just, you know, switch them over? Or, you know, I don't, I'm, I guess I just kind of want to know if you can expand on that a little bit. That's a really good question. So, and I, yeah, there is a really interesting parallel, right? Where in the beginning, I was like, well, there were some attempts. So the first translations of Bring a Father, the first couple of episodes, they actually were trying to make it more Japanese, 
they like they kept the first episode has like the panels in the American order, like going left to right, but then the writing is going the other way, which is then confusing, right? Because you have to like go one way and then you have to jump. And of course, that's exactly what happened with the first translations of manga in like the, the 1980s when people are like, oh, how are we going to do this? And uh, flipping now, because you already had like more advanced editing technology, especially with dig digital technology, it's a lot easier to like flip images, right? And like rearrange them. But that was pretty difficult at the time. And so eventually what most publications in the 1920s did is they were just like, screw it, we're just going to use the original reading order. It's the, it's the easiest thing. And uh, it's really only then in the 1930s that like the, the more traditional Japanese reading order of reading vertically and from right to left becomes, becomes more common. Um, I don't know if it was necessarily for, for authenticity's sake. I do know that because so many of these comic strips like Bring Up Father was a, spe a specifically labeled an American manga. It was called a Beikoku manga. And then Little Jimmy was called a Gaikoku manga, a foreign manga. So the the foreignness like kind of seems to have had something to do with the appeal, similar to how like the Japanese-ness of manga has something to do with their appeal. And I think that's a factor in sort of the, right? Like a lot of people, are upset if you actually flip a manga now because they're like, I want to read this as close to the original as possible. Um, but I do think it's yeah, it's that was one of the the most interesting discoveries for me that actually like it wasn't only Bring Up Father or Nokina Tosen. There were actually like a dozen or more uh, Japanese manga like written and drawn by Japanese people that actually use like left to right uh, reading orders, which is funny because now obviously like when you when you like Google, uh, what are the differences between manga and comics? People are like, oh, well, manga is read is uh, read right to left, whereas that has not always been true historically. And then uh, to your question about uh, original English language manga, I think that's super fascinating because it, it again shows like the different meanings that the word manga has. Right, when you say manga to a lot of people, it means something that's written in a Japanese style. Like it's it's manga because like with the success of Tezuka Osamu's work. Uh, in the 1950s, uh, Tezuka, who was strongly influenced by Disney, and also Bring Up Father, by the way, he read Bring Up Father as a child. Um, but Tezuka was very influenced by Disney and like Fleischer Studios animation, like Betty Boop and stuff like that. And uh, so his his very early works look very American. And then in like the, the early 1950s, he starts, and this is probably influenced by, by like illustrations of women that were popular in the 1920s and 1930s. He starts drawing the noses like straight as opposed to drawing like, like round shapes and stuff like that. And uh, he was using like horizontal, like Mickey Mouse type eyes, like very large, like, um, sorry, not, not horizontal, vertical large eyes as, as he was familiar with from like Disney stuff. And then he just turns them horizontal. And so his very early women characters often have like sort of a straight and then sort of like a kind of the, the precursor to the to the nose that you know from like virtually all manga and anime characters now but so if you see that start with tezuka and then at some point especially with princess knight uh when he has to come up with an androgynous character right they can pass for both man and woman at the same time that's then kind of when he starts applying the style also to his male characters and you can clearly see how then, because of the success of Tezuka's work and the popularity of it, 
most Japanese mangaka start emulating that and start using this drawing style. And this is really when in the, in the 50s and then over the course of the 60s and 70s, that really becomes the mainstream manga style. And you can see with, with artists um, like uh, Tsugi Yoshiharu, for example, or Shirato Sanpei, like that in the beginning, a lot of them actually used the Tezuka style, but then when they were sort of explicitly trying to, to create a different type of manga, right? Something that's more serious, more adult with less of the slapstick that Tezuka still had in his comics, that's when they start drawing a noticeably different style. So like a lot of like Shirato stuff, in the beginning, like his chins were also pointy, like Tezuka stuff, right? With the, the same nose, like the big eyes. And then for when he starts doing like his, his like Kashihon and like Gekiga stuff, where he's like explicit, like I want to make something serious, right? Like in a samurai epic that's like serious and dark. That's when he starts like making the eyes smaller, making the chins like angular. Uh, that's that's a really fascinating development. But of course now like this like Tezuka influence style has become so ubiquitous and so synonymous with manga. Um, then that's really what the word manga to a lot of people has come to mean, right? When you say like manga, um, I know from from a, a librarian a curator at OSU who has shown her students like manga from like the 1930s or 1940s and students were like, that's not manga, but it's like, it's, it's comics from Japan, like drawn by Japanese like mangaka. So I wonder oh, if people would, would maybe think that um, a comic like, um... Uh, oh, what is it? Uh, easygoing Daddy, you know, would be more akin to manga because that was like their, wasn't that really like the real first shot at like someone being like, okay, you know, let's let's actually try to do this ourselves outside of just yeah. translating it. Yeah, it was um, definitely the first Japanese drawn manga in the sense of a comic, right? Like a comic strip, like a narrative strip, an audiovisual narrative. Strip. Oh, back to your question about Okamoto, actually. So Okamoto. Uh, was similar to Kitazawa in the fact that the, the two of them were like the, the biggest names in manga, but uh, Kitazawa was more interested in political and social cartoons, and Okamoto was more interested in picture stories. So Okamoto also knew about American comics at the time, like audiovisual comics, but he really liked Wilhelm Busch. I mean, I don't know, I'm from Germany, so Wilhelm Busch is the except that you grew up with in Germany. Um, it's these picture stories where basically you have a written story and then it's like illustrated with images. So. Um, and Okamoto really, he loved that. And he like literally told uh, other cartoonists at the time that they should write picture stories like that. Like he was a, a huge fan of Bush's work. Uh, so Okamoto was, uh, he also just didn't like comics. So Kitazawa and Okamoto were like the, the two biggest names until the early 1920s. And then when Bring a Father comes in and is so successful, and then with Noki Natosan and like all these early Japanese comics, that's when Kitazawa and Okamoto rapidly lose in significance. And eventually both of them actually start drawing comics in probably in response to that because they're afraid of becoming irrelevant. But you see their influence way when, when people like um, Yutaka Aso, the, the creator of, of Nankinatosan and other early comic strip artists then become super successful in Japan. Nice. So, you know, we're at the point now in the interview where we're, you know, we're about to, um, you know, wrap up really soon. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to do a little bit of a rapid round with these questions here that we have here. And then of course, we'll get to some of our, uh, our last few um, or our big question um, that we ask our traditional question that everyone out there knows. Um, so let's get to that right here. What are, what's the first thing we have? Okay. Imagine us, Pete, what kind of socio cultural obstacles do you think American manga creators may encounter in the Japanese market or with a Japanese audience, if any? 
That is a really good question. And it goes back to when you say American manga creators, right? The first time I, I heard that question before at a symposium about uh, OEL, right? Original English language manga. And I was like, what do you mean? Originally, that's just a comic. Because I, I don't, right? So and I think that, that boils down to the, the difference in drawing styles, right? And I think what the, when you say American manga creators, it's like a, a comics artist essentially who draws in a Tezuka Osamu influence style, right? I think that's an accurate way probably of, of um, uh, characterizing that. Uh, I think in general, I mean, even for for Japanese uh, mangaka, it's incredibly hard to, to break into the, the comics market in Japan. And for foreigners, uh, I mean, essentially, unless you're a native Japanese speaker, you'd have to have your stuff translated. And um, one reason, for example, why we see American comics gradually disappear from the from Japan in the 1930s, I mean, with exceptions like Bring a Father, uh, is that it's just much more of a hassle for, for publishers to translate stuff, right, and to import stuff. Why would like Shonen Jump feature like a story written by like, an American that they had to translate into Japanese first, right? And then maybe there's like some like cultural things that they have to like edit. Um, I mean, even if, if that's not the case, that's certainly what they're thinking. They're like, why bother? Right, we can we can sell stuff with the stuff that we get from Japan. Why should we bother? So I think I, I'm not super with the caveat. I'm not super familiar with um, the the in and outs of, of comics publishing today, whether it be in Japan or the U.S. Um, but I think it's there are probably huge opposites. I don't know if they're necessarily sociocultural, but I think the the thing you would have to do something that's different, right? That that makes the additional effort on the parts of a publisher worth it. So I know there's a there's a Czech uh, uh, comics artist actually who's currently trying to get his work translated into Japanese and published in Japan. Is doing crowdfunding for that, and like uh, I think, yeah, I think it, it's it's incredibly hard um, to do that. But it's the way to do it is probably not to try to imitate what's popular in Japan. You'd have to do something that's different from what's currently popular, where a Japanese publisher would be like, oh, this is something that's currently not out there that we can only get from abroad, only from, from you, from this one person. That would make it worth it to them. But I mean, I, I have no idea what that would be, right? Like no one knows. That's why things become popular because no one, I mean, if, if you could predict what would be popular, what would be successful, like everybody would be doing that, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly, for sure. You know, you, you think about there's certain things that, um, you know, I mean, right now, I mean, and I'm kind of curious on your take on this, it seems like you have a lot of um, of uh, Japanese comics that are kind of um, parodying the superhero genre, like My Hero Academia, One mm. Punch Man. I don't know, I don't know, if, you know, kind of, you know, what your opinion is on that, but I noticed that, um, you know, that, that's becoming kind of a thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's partly due to the fact that even though American comics themselves aren't doing great in Japan, like you you do have the Marvel movies, right? So most Japanese people are familiar with these characters primarily through the Marvel movies now. Like they know of them, but um, there are very few Japanese people actually read American comics, especially superhero comics. Okay, and we have, I'm going to read these two more comments, and then we will go ahead and um, I'll let you take over, Nico. All right, um, Jeff Lilly. My friend is an archivist for a university in Vermont. He curates a huge comic collection in his university library and teaches comics history. Michigan State University has a uh, 
a comics curriculum in addition. So there are a few comic, there are a few comics jobs in academia, not many, but a few. I think that was in response to what you were saying. Or, yeah, or and, that, and that's certainly true. And yeah, Michigan State University also has a great comics collection. I don't know about their manga collection, but they do have a very extensive American comics collection. Okay, Nico, take so, us away. So All right. So, and uh, in your line, your line of work, obviously, you ended up deviating from uh, from this. I like I like the bozo comment. <laughs> Let's see. The person, I, 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 I think you should. I think you should look into it. I think you'll actually find that. Um, so yeah. This is from Twitch. Um, let's see here. Um, well, I'll read it. This guy is a bozo. Comics don't have audio. They're made of paper. Shaking my head. Um, okay. <laughs> the thing that I would say in response to to comments like that is that there's no like. What's the alternative theory? Right. So if it's not and I mean, you, you do see like the representations directly of like the phonograph in the first cartoons that have sort of depictions of sound. But then even if you don't believe that, like, what's the alternative theory? Why did it take if this is just a thing that anyone could have created anywhere in the world at any point in history with just paper and a pencil? Why don't we see it before like 1899, 1900? And why does it like come through translations of American comics? Like if anyone could ever, if it's just a universal thing, why doesn't it happen in multiple places? And at like any time in history, why is it specifically? And I mean, you even see the, the precursor with, with like silent cartoons that that like tracks uh, like audiovisual technology, well, like visual technologies, like, like zoetropes, like early forms of animation. Like you really see like these close historical connections and like, what's the alternative theory? What's a better, like give me, I'm open to, to a better <laughs> explanation. Just tell me like, what's your explanation? Why we don't see stuff like Dragon Ball or like uh, any like modern comic in like the 1400s in like Italy. You know, I like that. Cause it's almost like, hey, Daniel, you got a challenge, you know? Like, you know, yeah. like the challenge has been opened. <laughs> <laughs> like I've spent so many years. I mean, I've had this so much, I mean, now I find it mostly amusing. In the beginning, I was frustrated when people would say stuff like that because I spent so many years researching this. And there's like random people on the internet who'll be like, "Oh, that's nonsense. I know better." And it's like, "Well, do the research. Like, show me. I, I would. I would love to see that. Prove me wrong. I'll. I'll be happy to to admit that I'm wrong. But like, do do the actual research." Okay. All right, Nico. <laughs> You know, I'm, you know, it's crazy. Like when it comes to comments like that, though, like, I mean, honestly, like what I find, and I have to say this just for the audience to know this, like, if you look at this book, there's so many sources, like you put a lot of, like you, you showed all your sources in there. So if you do want to challenge- lot, I have a lot of pictures too. <laughs> like I didn't, I, I wish I could have included more pictures, unfortunately, because there's always a trade-off with price. It's already, I think it's overpriced. I don't make much money of this. I wish it were like 50% cheaper. Um, but if they had included more pictures, it would have made it more expensive. So that's the reason why I, I think it's it. worth it, like, to be honest with you. I think I got like 60, 60 pictures, but I, I did make sure, especially the thing about sound, like I kind of almost wasted a lot of pictures on like my point about sound that could have been used in like showcasing more translated American comics. But I included like so many of these like cartoons where you can actually see like directly like the speech balloon, right? It's only the phonograph that has a speech balloon in this one and stuff like that, precisely because I expected or like you have like 
all these like jokes that are precisely like about sound and only the sound that's that's like important for the joke is actually represented and you see people talking and it's not represented so i like, included so many pictures just to make sure that like because i knew this was going to be the most controversial point but it's like essential to the explanation for why it was bring a father that introduced comics to japan right why no japanese person did this before so it, in order for the history to make sense, I had to explain like this point about sound, but it is documented with a lot of pictures. And that's also why it's on the cover, the phonograph. There you have it. And with that being said, rolling into uh, some of our final couple of questions here. The, uh, now you, you uh you dis you, you disassociated yourself from the universities the, the background that you came from in order to go international with your uh with your uh, your research and studies here would you consider anyone even in the ball running as far as uh competing with you in, in this regard you know, anybody who would be considered your your, your rival of sorts is how we term it oh there are people in Japan who who do um, the same research. I mean, there's there's two people who are credited in the acknowledgments who've, who've helped me a lot. Um, there is outside of Japan. I mean, the, one of the like I said, you can't really do this research outside of Japan. I was lucky that I that I my advisor found me a job at a university in Japan where I could actually do this research while teaching there. Um, and it's just not because few people are interested in this stuff, right? Like the the students at OSU who said, oh, that's not really manga. Like it's just not, most people who are into manga are into more modern stuff. Most people who are into comics, like American comics are more into modern stuff. So it's not like a super popular subject. So outside of Japan, I'm probably the, I mean, it's a, I don't like saying this, but I'm probably the most knowledgeable person outside of Japan on the subject. But there are like, there's a curator in Japan who I rely on when I have a question and I'll ask him about stuff. He's, he's, he's a collector of, of like pre-war stuff as well. So there are some people in Japan who are also, but they've also been very supportive. Um, so we, I have a collaborative relation with, with like the people in Japan who do this kind of research. Yeah, I mean, it's, this is uh obviously yeah it's more it's, it's like especially i mean but that's that's kind of with uh it's kind of with any medium uh out there really right i mean once you get to like trying to get into the historical aspect of it i mean most falls that's not really their thing you know it's just like you know it's very specialized so it's like but that's why it tends to be one of the more unique and rewarding aspects of uh kind of any uh what, what do you call it uh craft out there at least, yeah, at least the, in my opinion. The biggest reward for me personally was that I'd always wondered about this. Like I'd always wondered like, why are manga so similar to other comics? Like why is it so, if it's if it evolved from two completely separate origin points, like why did they end up looking so similar? And like the research has finally allowed me to answer that question for myself. So that was the biggest reward. That you, have finally, somebody like, out there still, you have somebody out there still screaming and saying like, they're not similar, they're different, you know? <laughs> no, I'm kidding, but. And then we roll into the final question. Uh, traditional, as uh, as everyone put it, uh, something we've been having, we've happened on uh, almost every episode. It still stands tradition today. What is your ultimatum? As it originally is turned, updated to what is your end game? Where is all this going? Yeah, what, what is, is my end game? Your end personal game. end game in all of this. 
I'm currently writing a, a longer story, like a longer history of manga, because there really is no. So I'm kind of afraid that someone else is going to do that, is going to take the research that I did in this book and just going to publish like a, with like a trade publisher and sort of just use my research to complement the gaps in existing research. So I'm currently working on like a longer, like from the 1890s to today. That's that's currently my biggest project. So I guess that you could call that my end game. I don't really have anything planned for beyond that, but I, I, I do want to do that and sort of make sure that there's a there's like a an, an, a book out there for people who really want to know how did manga develop and like sort of see the entire picture including like the, the structures of the publishing industry and like a coherent story that's not like oh manga used to be this thing and that was this and then was this it just like jumps around but like a coherent story that sort of traces both these like formal and stylistic developments like the appearance of like these paint stars and like the the mainstream drawing style and the publishing structures with these magazine publishers so that's that's i guess my my end game and so the question is asking uh where you can order a copy it's wherever support your local bookstore you can ask them to to order it there's also um if you can't do that there's a website called bookshop.org which uh like funds local bookstores i mean you can get it from amazon um but uh if if you want to support a local bookstore you can get it from bookshop.org or directly from any any bookstore really can order it Okay, and we just put that in the comments too, bookshop.org, so you guys can go there as well. Now, did I say bookstore.org? I'm sorry if, oh, I, yeah. I'm sorry if I said the wrong thing. Bookshop. Said, bookshop. Yeah, bookshop.org, right? Okay, okay, because like three people wrote in the comments, so I was like, oh, did I, did I say the wrong thing? No, yeah, bookshop.org. Oh, no, 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 yeah. <laughs> so um, before we wrap up here, you know, I do want to know, um, you know, you did just mention where you can get the book, but where can we find anything else, you know, as it relates to you, like whether it be, you know, follow you to know what's going on, like, you know, oh, go ahead. I have a Twitter account under my name. Uh, I have an Instagram, uh, pre-war underscore manga, where I post a lot of pictures. So if you want to actually, for the person who was like, this guy's a bozo, I uh, have uh, a lot of pictures where you can see more evidence that I wasn't able to put into the book. Uh, what else? I made a YouTube video actually, where like, if you want to like rehash anything that i've said if you if i was rambling too much um you can check out it that's also under my real name i guess or if you look that look that up on youtube uh yeah that's that's about it and if and, there's any, any updates on anything I'll, I'll post that somewhere on social media and i'm not even gonna lie because it was really recent too i do want to go ahead and you know congratulate you on oh, that, Eisner, thank you, know, you so you know great job on that right you know so you have it near you by any chance? I'm just curious. Oh, oh, I do actually. I, I do have it. It's like it was very it was very rewarding after because I mean I, I couldn't find a job in academia because of this. I mean, maybe not only because of this research topic, but at least in part. And like uh I had one like really terrible peer reviewer who was like, This book should not be published, it's garbage. So it was like really, really nice to like get some recognition that like at least to to some people, uh it actually did did matter. Uh, what I what I like spent like five years of my life on, so that, so it was very nice. Thank you. If if anyone's watching this who voted for the book, thank you so much. You know, well, um, you know, again, you know, thank you so much for coming on today, Ika. You know, we really appreciate it. Um, you know, really quickly for anybody who's watching, if you guys did enjoy this video, please go ahead, thumb up this video, give like it on on Twitch, like it on YouTube, like it on Facebook. It really helps out. You know, the stream. It helps out the show, Shining Spotlight Show. If you're watching this. On Spotify, make sure you share this around because I know usually the Spotify episodes come out a little bit later. So you're probably watching this like 
maybe about a couple days after we actually did the live stream, but um, we appreciate you all. Um, you know, make sure you check out all of the links and pick up this book, guys. You know, especially if you're going to challenge it, pick it up, read it, and then right. challenge it. That way, you, you know, you you know what you're talking about when you go into it. So, um, with that being said, you know, subscribe and thank you guys for watching. Uh, oh, one last thing: if you guys, uh, you know, are, have been following our uh, developments on the Killbox project, which is our hip hop battle manga series. Um, make sure you go ahead and you check out the YouTube channel as that is where all of the developments will take place in terms of the updates for that. And that is, again, Killbox, the, the battle rap series that we're working on. So uh, with that being said, we will see you guys in two weeks. Our next guest is Midnight Cross. Um, she you know, has, I think, about 20,000 followers on, on um, YouTube. So a lot of you guys may know her. She does a lot of videos on... Um, on um, uh, like you know, manga tip videos, that sort of thing. So make sure you're there two weeks from now, same time, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Bring your questions, you, um, you name it. And we will see you guys later. One last applause for, you know, uh, Aika Axner for coming on today. And thank you so much for having me. That was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we will see you guys next time. Catch y'all later.